that I did not speak to my family for eight years. And that was an absolute heartbreak. And as you can imagine, that year of reparation, every single kind of vacation that came up, we would spend with my parents. And this time, you know, for however long, two weeks, whatever it looked like. And this time was really them sharing with me everything that I had missed, everything that had happened. Hello, Cult Hackers. I'm Celine, a media graduate with a personal interest in cults. And I'm Stephen, organisational psychologist, also with an interest in cults and high control groups, and a former member. So this week, Celine, who are we talking to? Uh, this week, we've got Jennifer French. That's right. Jennifer is a podcaster. I met her at the International Cultic Studies Association conference, which you're probably fed up with me saying that, mm-hmm. um, but it is true. And um, yeah, I'll, we'll soon have run out of all those people that we met mm-hmm. at that conference. Um, yeah, so she was really lovely. We um, talked a lot about yeah how she got in, uh, her experience being in, um, you know, the experience of coming out and reconnecting with family, which was really nice. So that's a point of the story that was really good to hear because often we do talk about losing family post cult but for her story it was about gaining them again which was nice yeah she joined a mystical christian group um and lived in that for quite a few years i think 11 years she Mm. says um yeah the big the big emotional thing there was the family issue wasn't it she lost um her family or rejected them really for um a long time including her brother Mm -hmm. whom she was very close to so yeah it's quite emotional um jennifer's now a professional so she has um, a practice where she helps people who have come out of these sorts of groups. She's also done a master's in Salford in uh, coercive control, or the psychology of coercive control, um, and has studied with Jilly Jenkinson, our former guest, um, whom we talk about a little bit in the podcast. We admire her very much. So, um, yeah, it was lovely to talk to Jennifer. So, uh, shall we listen? welcome Jennifer French. Welcome Jennifer to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me Stephen and Celine. I'm really delighted to be here with you both. You're very welcome. Um, Jennifer you're a a mental health professional and you also have some experience of uh, living and uh, being associated with a cult so we want to hear all about that today Mm -hmm. Um, and you also are a graduate from the Psychology of Co- Coercive Control from Salford University in our neck of the woods mm-hmm. in Manchester. Um, so we've met one or two people that have, have done that. It's a very exciting program. And uh, I met you at the ICSA conference. So uh, it's, uh, I've got so much to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. Where do we start? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm happy to share, you know, anything that the audience mm-hmm. and you both are curious about. If you one, I could do kind of a high level of my cult experience. Mm-hmm. I think that would yeah. be great. Your story first is, is often the, the best way to mm-hmm. go. So tell us um, about your story and I guess why you're interested in this area of research. Yeah. So, um, and please interrupt me mm-hmm. with any questions. Sure. Um, you know, this story goes on and on and on, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, High level, um, when I was about 
24, don't quote me on that, but right around there, I had been, um, I actually wasn't a bit of a transition time in life, um, but I, I do like to say, you know, um, just in terms of some of the perceptions around how people actually join or get into these groups, um, I actually was training with a midwife. Um, I had just gotten kind of my formal education to become a certified professional midwife, which is a home birth midwife. Um, and I was training with a midwife in Boston. It was actually at the very first birth that I attended that I met her assistant who had also trained with her, but was a full blown midwife at that time. And she actually invited me to a seminar on Mother Mary, and it sounded very kind of female empowerment oriented. I was into it, you know, accepted the invitation right away and went. My story is interesting because, you know, I, I actually at that time, I felt... Um, you know, I was really excited. I had this new role. I felt like I was kind of on top of my game and the world was opening and it was all pretty exciting. Mm. Um, and at this very first seminar that I attended, I really kind of bought in hook, line and sinker. And it, it may be interesting, actually, I think um, you may both know that my story is out there of how I got in and how I got out of my group on, you know, my podcast, mm -hmm. but the details are sort of interesting in that I went in skeptically wow. and yet within hours, wow. I mean, I walked out of there going, this is my tribe. This is what I've always wanted kind of thing. I also did have a spiritual experience during that time. So I think that was powerful for me and obviously felt personal and non-contrived, you know. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, the major pain point for me in this experience was really around the loss of family. Mm -hmm. And so basically what happened was I got into, you know, everything that the cult offered right away. It was labeled as a Christian mystical school. Um, and so we always described it as, you know, the inner path of Christianity that doesn't really have a term for that, like Sufis to Islam. Um, so you know, or Zen is to Buddhism, you know, that inner, inner world okay. sort of coming alive. Um, so what was interesting about it, you know, it had uh, major Catholic rituals, communion every morning, uh, prayers every night, you know, it was, it was high demand. So, you know, you know, that's yeah, lots to do, lots to do, <laughs> lots yeah. to do all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I loved it. And, but what was interesting was that right away, I mean, I think I arrived, I arrived, I think in a like October timeframe and already by that December, I was considering whether to even go home and be with family for Christmas, which wow. was unheard of in terms of my family dynamic. So were you I, living there? Was it, was this a live-in sort of arrangement? Good question, Stephen. 
I wasn't at that time, but I moved in right away. So I took what they called novice vows. Um, That was a vow of obedience and a vow of celibacy. And I was living with all women. And um, so it was very rigorous and very immersive. Um, Obviously, as that was starting to happen, so that all happened very quickly. I mean, Mm. I think within six months after meeting the group, I was living in the house. Wow. And yeah, and so what was, what's kind of particularly unique to my story, which of course, not that others don't share this, but I actually was very close with my family prior to getting in. And I have a brother that's two and a half years younger than I am. And he actually kind of becomes an integral part of this story of how I get out. Um, But essentially I spent about three years in this group, trying as hard as I could to convince my family that what I was doing was wonderful and amazing. And they just weren't buying it. They also, there was news that came out that we were in fact a cult. So that was actually like reported publicly. Um, When that happened, my parents got together. They sort of found other parents of these adult children in this group and collaborated with them. They ended up consulting with some cult experts. And I actually knew that was going on because I could tell by the way they they shifted in terms of speaking with me. Right. Um, And, you know, I was getting so many messages from the leader that, you know, they're against us and dark and controlling. And so all of that was kind of being worked on to me um, as I was sort of coming alive as well in this, um, I guess what I would call kind of a spiritual meditative life, um, which, you know, of course, as you understand more and more about these dynamics, there was lots going on there that was... Mm unhealthy and manipulative. Um, but essentially I was in it for 11 years. I was ordained a priest in that organization and I opened one of the centers in New York. Um, and when the breakup happened, it was big, you know, it was kind of big Mm -hmm. and dramatic and, um, very intense. And when I left that year, so like I mentioned, my brother was actually kind of a big part of that story. And what he said to me um, around that time, I mean, as soon as I told him that I had basically left, he cried, I cried. And he said, would you like to come live with me? And that was a family owned apartment in New York City. And I went to him. Um, I was married at the time. I had an arranged marriage within the organization. So my ex-husband at the time had said, um, you know, everything of this has to die and including the marriage and anything that kind of is real will live and prevail. Um, And he was a great support for me coming out as well. Right. So just, just by leaving your, um, your husband at the time said, that's it, the, the marriage is over essentially because you're leaving. Is that 
Is that right? Sorry, I didn't really explain that. So what actually happened there is that he was a big part of my getting out as well. And what actually happened was he had his light bulb moment and he realized what this was. He also, he's very, he's an ER doc. So he's a researcher and a medical scientific person. And actually the way he kind of deconstructed was he did it very privately and I knew something was going on, but not exactly what. So when he presented me with this information, he literally had post-its. I mean, it could have looked like a crazy person <laughs> room. It was a little extreme, but yeah. brilliant, you know. Yeah. And he literally had post-its all over the walls of the room, sorting through um what makes a cult a cult. You know, he wow. had done his research. Yeah. He actually a lot of um Uh, what was being exposed about Scientology was very helpful for him. He happened to watch uh, the actor Jason Behe speaking to, um, I think it may have been a board actually in the UK maybe, um, but some kind of governmental board Mm -hmm. somewhere. And that was a huge, you know, when he saw that, he kind of said like, okay, this is Mm -hmm. confirmed everything that I have been thinking Mm -hmm. and exploring. Um, so what actually happened there was that he presented all this to me. I knew I had to try it on. I mean, I knew what this meant in that group setting. It meant either I was going to stay with him and be painted as the little woman that couldn't be without a man. My other option was to choose God. So that, you know, I knew that that's what would be painted about me. And I also knew if I didn't really try on what he was saying, that I would dishonor this marriage and this man who I knew and respected and trusted. And so, so I did that. I really opened to it. It brought up a ton of questions for me. And then I said to myself, because again, this was part of the group mind of around kind of empowerment, that I said, now I have to face the teachers. I have to ask my own questions. I have to challenge them. And of course, I got pulled back in for about three months. And, you know, when it was over, it was very over for me. I mean, I literally had an experience where when the wheels of my car got off the property and hit the pavement. It was like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle moving really quickly. And all these moments in history, just all of a sudden coming in and everything just fitting together. Like this thing was wrong and this was wrong and it connected to Mm. this in this way. And, oh, it was just a a bizarre, (laughs) most out of body experience. That's interesting. So remind us of the name of the group again, please, uh, Jennifer. Yes. So actually, I'm I'm happy to say the name of the group because the male leader of the group is currently functioning. Right. So the group was called the Order of Christ Sophia. Under the Order of Christ Sophia, we called our centers the centers of light. That transitioned when this male leader has taken things on completely on his own to Ruach Center. And now he is in... Um, Asheville, Tennessee, 
with a group of very isolated individuals. And they are currently called something like um, inner path, inner path or inner something like that. Okay. So Peter Bowes is his name. And uh, okay. you can definitely find info about him online, but they've also yeah. gone a little underground. Okay. So could you tell us a little bit more about the the beliefs of the group? So you said it was a, uh, essentially a, based around Christianity, but the the more mystical side of it. So I'm, that's something I know zero about. My brand of the brand of Christianity that I was raised in as a Jehovah's Witness has its own, you know, peculiarities, but I don't know anything about mystical Christianity. What's that mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it really is kind of the, you know, we refer to it as sort of like the experiential path. So knowing through your own experience. Um, And of course that would be the beautiful unadulterated version. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was actually, I was mesmerized it from the, uh, mesmerized about it from the beginning, because for example, we did Bible contemplations every, you know, one night a week. And then we did what what was called tree of life um, another night. And so everyone from the community attended those. But the Bible contemplation, for example, we would take a passage and you would look at each of the characters, identify kind of the qualities of those characters, and then translate that to our inner world. So it would kind of be like, how would the Jesus part of me teach the Pharisee part of me? Oh, I see. Okay. And sort of breaking things down in that way, very kind of symbolic. Um, also very seemingly in honor of both the balance of masculine and feminine. So the group really put Jesus and mother Mary as, um, on the same level. Um, and that of course was very attractive Mm. to me as well, you know, just feeling like it was, um, kind of unique, uniquely female empowered in that way. Sure. Um, so we did, we worked from the new Testament and then the tree of life teachings were actually based on teachings from a prior group, which is sort of interesting. It's sort of the beginning, um, uh, birth of, um, these teachings that then, the leaders of our group kind of took and shifted a little bit. And, um, but those were teachings on things, you know, I loved those teachings. It was like teachings on the light and what is the light and working with the light. Um, so, and then there was a lot of uh, meditation based practices of all sorts. Um, and then at the very core of the practice was something that they called guidance where, um, and again, to date, uh, some people from that group, I think have gotten offended by my saying this, but with where I stand now, I think absolutely how ridiculous this thing that we all subscribe to, that there is this one way to connect with God within, that you go to a specific place inside of yourself and you get very still and quiet, and then you present a question And then you would actually hear a response to that question. 
well, that actually happened to work for me. You know, it, it, that worked with kind of how I am naturally structured. And so I had a very, you know, kind of deep experience with that practice. But, you know, that's not how everybody connects. Some of us are auditory. Some of us are, you know, sensory. So it, it just, you know, now looking back on that, I actually think that that put a lot of people in very serious distress, um, created a lot of issues in and of itself for certain individuals. Mm. And then, you know, your entire, the entire basis of evaluation of how spiritually evolved you were was directly about that connection and were you getting clear guidance? And of course, the two teachers were the ones that told you whether the guidance was right or not. Yeah. So, so your your self worth within this this belief system is tied up with your ability to do this particular thing that not Absolutely. everybody feels comfortable with or is um, connects with in any way. So, you're I guess for some that would be pretty torturous, really. Well, I was just going to ask, um, in terms of your like entering into it at the beginning, did you have any prior beliefs that it like built or fed into, or was it something entirely new for you? Like, did it, yeah, just did it build off anything prior existing? Oh, that's such a good question. I've actually never really thought about mm -hmm. that. You know, I was definitely a seeker, mm -hmm. and so even the kind of depth of connection that I was looking for with friends was sort of based on that. Like I went through a phase in high school, college of even kind of like drug experimentation, but that experimentation was sort of this, it had a spiritual flavor to it. You know, like my friends and I were reading the Bhagavad Gita and Jack Kerouac on the road. And, you know, it was sort of this, um, I would say that I was in a mode of um, kind of coming alive in in the spiritual or in the deeper things um, at that time. Yeah, so that's why you kind of connected maybe more with it because it is that spiritual vein rather than just a Christianity kind of situation. Good call. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think you're right, Celine. If it had been, and I had actually dabbled a lot mm -hmm. in different Christian environments, mm -hmm. um, and this one really did speak mm -hmm. to me in a way that none other had. Okay. It's interesting that that term seeker. I, I keep coming across you mentioned that yesterday. Um, actually, that, yeah. um, it was, mm -hmm. wasn't it? We spoke to um, uh, a lovely uh, person talking about. Christian science actually she was raised as a Christian scientist yeah. but again she used that term and actually when I was a Jehovah's Witness we'd talk about people who were searching for something you know we'd mm -hmm. uh, when we called on people's uh, houses and um, you know if you'd spend some time there often you'd have a little chat with your fellow JWs afterwards you know you're on that door for a long time and we'd say something like yeah they're definitely see they're definitely searching for something um so I think there's almost like an instinctive um, knowledge or an instinctive, uh, you know, they're looking you're, you're, as a cult member, as a, as a recruiter of a cult, you're looking for people like that. That's like the straggler in the, um, in the herd that you're thinking, yeah, I can, I can get them. Of course you think at the time that you're, you're doing something good for them, but I think there's something, yeah, that, that you're, you're ripe, I think for, for being found by a cult group. I'm not saying that all people are like that, but yeah, 
that's definitely part of the problem i think well and i have to just smile for a a second Stephen, about you know love the loaded language in the different groups and how it works in these different ways that there's something about seeker that means something slightly different to Mm -hmm. the jw's right Mm. whereas in another group it's like amazing striving Mm. for all that is good and brilliant (laughs) yeah you see jehovah's witnesses are very um that they're not spiritual at all and they would they would um totally deny that oh yeah they'll use the word but not in the same way so it's like the phrase not in the same way um Yeah, like a having a spiritual wife or like a spiritual partner is something that's thrown around, but like it's not. Mm. But that's more in the sense of like there being a good wife rather than following good doctrine, rather than like being a yeah. spiritual person. And I guess the way a lot of people would use the word. Uh, absolutely, they would find what you just described as oh, that's all too, you know, airy-fairy and there's nothing nothing there, you know, because they think it's important to sit and study the Bible in a very kind of... Regimented. Um, regimented way. That's a great mm. word, yeah, regimented way. Um, yeah. Whether it's actually, you know, analysing the text is a different question, mm. but that's really interesting. That There's definitely different ways to appeal to different people there. Um, so how long were you in the group? You said uh, 12 years, did you? 11 years 11 yeah. years so that's quite a good chunk of your um your young life really isn't it your the time when maybe you'd be doing things like developing your career um if you wanted to finding relationships and those sorts of things so looking back on that now how do you sort of feel about that how, how do you think about that time you know, it's really interesting. I would say that I just leave room for myself, even now, Stephen, to continually have like the layers that unfold around the experience. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like often my perspective, I sort of leave it open in transition. Yeah. And yet, to answer you kind of more specifically, there there were so many, you know, for so many years, I, I really acknowledged that there was so much positive for me. There was also so much loss. And that first year of reconnecting with family where really I couldn't do anything else. I mean, I was sort of a wreck and just... Mm that reparation really needed to happen for me because it felt so against my nature that I actually, oh, I don't know if I actually stated this, that I did not speak to my family for eight years. Wow. And that was an absolute heartbreak. And as you can imagine, that year of reparation, basically what happened was because I was living with my brother in New York, every single kind of vacation that came up, we would spend with my parents. Mm -hmm. And this time, you know, for however long, two weeks, whatever it looked like. And this time was really them sharing with me everything that I had missed, everything that had happened, all the things, you know, the deaths in my family that I didn't attend, Mm -hmm. the births that I didn't attend, the the biggest heartbreaks for me were some of the stories, you know, where I wondered if I just could have been there for one of the family members that was really hurt, you know? I mean, so 
that was a major process, as you can imagine, you know, just tears after tears and then rehashing and then, you know, everybody's fine. And then we're all at dinner and having a little wine and one little thing is said and I lose it. And, you know, just rounds of, Mm. um, of kind of processing. But I think, I think truly for us, at least, um, probably due to the nature of the relationship that we had had, I really needed that. They really needed that. And I think that's the only way we could have gotten back so quickly to feeling truly together and um, kind of back where we had been. Like, like I remember every once in a while, I think about this moment. I don't know that I've ever really shared this uh, publicly, but there was a moment during that year and I was solidly in because I had feelings about it. So I think it's probably, you know, my guess is like seven or eight months. And I remember being in the kitchen with my family and looking at my mom and my brother. And there was this moment of tenderness between the two of them. And it was like I was a stranger looking from the outside. And I realized I used to be in that unit. And I'm not now, but it's right also that I'm not like, this is Mm. sort of, this is my suffering to (laughs) behold because, Mm. you know, I, I did make this choice. Um, and so I remember that that was like a little gauge for me or something. And I remember kind of hitting that year mark at some point and going, oh, I'm I'm back there. That moment that I saw between my brother and my mom, that's where I am now with each member of my intimate family. I I, I can only imagine how your parents must have and your family, your wider family must have felt. I mean, that must have been so joyful to have you back again. I mean, that is one of those feelings uh, we we talk to people who've lost their families through this sort of thing and it's it's just heartbreaking and it must have been fantastic your parents as a as a father myself I can imagine what that was like (laughs) yes and I think you know I I am not you know what we kind of call an exit counselor um but it's really a place that I have a real soft spot spot in my heart for is the family members and kind of speaking Mm. to them and it's something that I do a lot you know um if they want that just as kind of a, you know, in some ways it feels like I, I have gotten to give other parents and family members what I didn't give my family yeah. for those yeah. years. Do, sure. do you have any advice on like reintegrating? So I feel like it almost feels like if this was a movie, it would end when you all hug and then it's over and it's like, oh, it's fine. But actually yeah. there's more to it than that. <laughs> so like, do you, do you have any like advice? Because it feels like you almost want to just jump in and be back where you are but that's probably not reality is that you've been away for a long time and like you said there's moments where you see things and you go oh it's different now um and I want to get back to where we were do you have any advice around that yeah I think um you know there were so many things that kind of came well I guess what I'll say just taking a step back from not being personal Mm. about it what I have seen is that you know, as different as we are as human beings is the difference in the experiences of getting out, of how we process all of that, of how we reconnect. 
And I, and so I, I really encourage people to really, you know, embrace the newness that we now get to choose, like even just that, that we get to choose. Mm -hmm. And so to really start to tune in to honoring our intuition and what we feel kind of guided to move toward in terms of healing. So I know for me, for example, um, you know, I often recommend books to people. When I showed up at that apartment in New York City with my brother, there was a stack of eight books that my family had gotten me, now books that I recommend to others, you know, that are wonderful suggestions. I never even opened them for years. There was just something, it was like, I just couldn't do it. Mm. It was sort of like, so again, you know, I guess this is sort of the, the story of the nuances, right? Is that for me, the value that I needed in that moment had to be placed on family reconnection. Not everybody's going to have that, right? Mm, yeah. um, and that was almost more important than sorting through like what had happened to me. I think also I had an incredible support system of friends that I had had within the group who left at the time that I did. Right. And that was... You know, I, I think of these guys that have left with no support at all. And I just, mm. it is, I so respect that. I mean, it really just takes, mm. takes a lot to do that. Um, and so that also for me, I think, I think being able to talk about it whenever I wanted to with others who really knew the group and knew the whole mind and knew the leaders mm that we were hashing it out, you know, and that was really helpful. You know, it was kind of like we were all in a discovery process together and that's how everything was starting to unwind and unfold and make sense. Um, and then, you know, I, I ended up very much kind of dabbling in other spiritual things. I think that was a part of my process of becoming empowered in myself to go, I know the, the little red flags now, and I feel them <laughs> with a breeze. You know? <laughs> and to be able to go, I'm going to show up anyway at this Buddhist center where I can tell the front row are all students and they're in a formal relationship with this teacher. And I'm going to do it for as long as it feels good to me. And I'm going to leave and not do, I'm going to give myself permission to be in this environment and do whatever the hell I want to do. So I'm not going to close my eyes for meditation if I don't want to. I'm not going to participate in the chanting if I don't want to. You know, just that that process also, I think for me was, it was like a reclamation of the spiritual, which you know, was why I got in in the first place. And this is, as you all well know, it's like so often, especially for first gen people who are choosing to go in, it's like, there are these beautiful qualities to these people that not only draw them in, but then allow for some of the manipulation. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so. Yeah, there has to be some some carrot. There has to be some reason why people are attracted to these things. Otherwise, of course, people wouldn't come in um so uh, just 
I want to get on to obviously your work because that's really important. And I should have mentioned right at the off, of course, you have a podcast, which is great. And I should have mentioned that. So I apologize. Um, you have the Hope Project podcast where you talk to other people like us, I suppose. Um, yeah. So so that's really a useful resource for people to, to go to. So I want to definitely get into that. But I before we leave the group behind um uh what what was it about the group that is or was damaging to you i mean obviously you were separated from your family so i guess that's the the number one thing um what was there anything else um you're living in a in a a fairly secluded community i guess is was that a problem or you know what why did you want to leave i suppose is is that um, in a nutshell, what's the what was the big reason for you to leave? Yeah, so really the the thing that opened for me was that I was able to validate that the teachers had lied. Right. And when that happened for me, everything crumbled because that to me was. I was truly buying into and believing that these two teachers had, I actually feel slightly embarrassed to utter this now, but that they had complete, clear connection with God and therefore could also get clear guidance for others, for the work that we were doing, all of that. Mm. And you know, I think in some ways, at that time at least, you wouldn't see many chinks in that armor unless you were very close to them. And I was. And I I was really, truly, completely bought in. So what's sort of interesting from a sort of psychological perspective in my case, I would say that once I made the break from family, it actually was relieving in some way because yeah. now I was no longer struggling internally. Yeah. I got to fully devote myself to the whole mission of what we were doing. Loved it, was totally consumed by it, was also having a lot of amazing spiritual experiences. Um, so that felt rich. You know, my inner world felt rich. It was really my ex-husband leaving that blew things up because he wrote a whole expose. So he wrote a letter, sent it to everybody. And it was, as you can imagine, it was methodical. It was well thought out. It was backed up with research. And that's really what kind of like created an opening Um because now everybody was kind of in a bit of a different mindset. Hmm. Um, and so anyway, things obviously, you know, transitioned very quickly into um, the whole order transitioned into something else right after I left. Right. So it was kind of a tumultuous time, right. but it really was that I, I basically had a moment where I confirmed that they were lying. And when that happened for me, everything broke. So in, in simple terms, you found out that it wasn't true, I guess. What yep. they were telling you was not true. And that was that was a big thing for me, um, Jennifer, um, that we used to call it the truth. 
And um, I think all these groups have this this uh, this conceit that we have the truth. And when you make that claim, of course, that's a big claim. Therefore, as soon as you fall foul of that supposed fact, then obviously, then the bricks start to to fall down. So I think that's a. It's kind of you can understand why groups try to make this claim that we have the only truth. But of course, as soon as you start spotting things that aren't true, that are lies or that are mistakes then the whole thing comes tumbling down, isn't it? Fascinating. And it's also interesting because most of us are living in some sort of cognitive dissonance, but it tends to be like one thing, you know, or, I mean, I know it happens in different ways for different people. Mm. And we Mm. talk about the shelf, you know, that there are the little things that go on the shelf. You just kind of table and then the shelf breaks one day. It's too heavy (laughs) with all those books. Yeah, with all those things that are too difficult to accept. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting what you say, Stephen, actually about the truth and that as kind of a principle that is a setup for an eventual crumble. Yeah. Because actually I think about how, you know, with a, I've now kind of come across a similar story with um, some Jehovah's Witnesses where it was really this... Um, two of you will know better than I, but it was really this, uh, there was some sort of um, trial done by the Australian government. The Australian Royal Commission. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And so it was fascinating to me now. I've actually received a similar story from a lot of um, XJWs who have said that it was in watching that, that that thing broke for them of the truth. A lot of people have said that. Um, yeah, a lot of people have said that to yeah. us as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's brittle is the word I was trying to find. I think there's a it's a very brittle concept. Um, so it on the outside it feels like a really tangible thing. This is the truth, but if you set yourself up in that way, then it, it does make you quite weak to any anything that that penetrates that. Yeah, and of course that yeah. I'd liken it to, I'd liken it to like ceramic like it can withstand lots of scratches and lots of little things but once you Mm. drop it it shatters like you've only got so much you can handle so good Good. (laughs) we use that her uh, degree in in creative writing um yeah. coming to fruition (laughs) okay cool um so leaving obviously um you had your um your qualifications that you'd got to be a midwife um, which is great, by the way. What a great um, thing to have on your CV. But what else did you sort of have in terms of career, qualifications? How did you pick all that up afterwards and, and make mm-hmm. a life for yourself outside? Yeah, great question. So interestingly enough, in this group, um, everybody had jobs in what we called okay. the real world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so for worse. That's kind of right. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually, at some point in that organization, the one of the teachers received guidance that I was too much in feminine energy and I was, I had rejected some masculine energy because of my relationship with my father 
This was also, by the way, um, it's actually important to say this, I think. It took me many years to get here and really realize this and sort of put it together, even though it's obvious. This cult was not just a religious spiritual cult. It was a psychological cult Mm. because Mm. the two leaders were actually Jungian therapists. Mm. So they had left their careers and done this. And in fact, Mm. the male leader that's still functioning, I literally remember him telling me that his PhD thesis research was around group dynamics. Oh. I thought you were going to say how to start a cult. Mm. Well, you know. Basically, yeah. like if you know manipulative dynamics, yeah. you can start yeah. a cult. Absolutely. So oh, yeah. I know, really interesting there. So <laughs> what they did with us actually is that they had us all, you know, working real jobs mm-hmm. in, you okay. know, in the world. And so when they so when they kind of threw this at me again i mean this is how indoctrinated i was i barely even questioned it you know this career that i had put money and time and energy and love into um you know these families and their lives and building this business um and i didn't even think twice about it so i got my mba because that was the first step that they told me to do Um, I ended up going into corporate America for a number of years. So in some ways, it's, you know, in some ways, I mean, compared to others' experiences, there is some gratitude that I actually had a job where I was making really good money and functioning in normal society. Um, Again, it's amazing how isolated we were even there because really getting out, um, I mean, I remember being at my job in New York City and um, I was working for a financial firm at the time. And I remember everybody was watching uh, this show. Do you, well, maybe you guys don't know, but it was some uh, show that was about an island that everybody was on and they, had these transitions where the island almost had its own personality. What or you mean lost? lost? Lost. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Of course, we were all addicted to Lost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know Lost because right. in our organization, we were not watching television yeah, or anything. Yeah. So I remember that was one of the shows, you know, everybody was watching it and you had to watch it because the next day everyone was talking yeah. about it. You were left out. So, I mean, that that's really rings bells. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses, that is a very similar experience. You know, they, there will be certain things that they do engage in, but that you're always kind of semi-detached from the world. In fact, there's a scripture that you may have um, been talked to about, but um, Jesus said, you know, you are no part of the world um, because I am no part of the world. So you're in the world, but you're no part of the world. So that, that creates a kind of semi-detached relationship to it. So we went to school and you go to work, but yeah, all the other kids. And then later your work colleagues are all doing things. They're going out to the pub or the the club, or they're doing sports that weekend or something. And that's just not a world that you know anything about. So yeah, it is, it's strange. It even, it can be, I think even more isolating, um, because you're you're in it, but you're not you're not taking part. It's like you're some sort of observer. Now that's yeah. that's really interesting. So um, just to clarify in my own mind, so basically you you'd chosen a career, you'd got qualifications for this career as as midwife that I'm guessing was pretty important to you, 
But these, um, this religious group basically told you that nah, you can't do that or you shouldn't be doing that because it's too feminine. You need to develop your masculine side. Is that basically what they said to you? Spot on, Stephen. Wow. <laughs> yep. So I went back to school. I got my MBA. Mm. So I did have a job when I got out. And then it was really through... Um, like the thing that started to first shift in me was that I discovered um, this modality of psychotherapy called internal family systems. Hmm. And there's a lot about, I mean, now in retrospect, I also see that there are elements of how I accessed my inner world in the cult that is actually quite similar to some elements of this modality of psychotherapy. Mm. Needless to say, sort of long story short, um, I do feel like I, I will tell this part of the story because I think, you know, it sort of honors all these kind of connections and, and how things unfold and also, you know, the beauty of, of other people and sort of opening your ears to mm. others so about six months after I left, my family said to me very cautiously, we've been communicating with other family members um, of people who are in the group. Are you open to speaking with them? And that basically has started, you know, with two women, two mothers, uh, like now a 10-year relationship that I have had with them. And they... Um, you know, so we remain in communication when they're thinking of reaching out to their adult child in this group or so on and so forth. Well, over the years, one of them would continually invite me to ICSA conferences. <laughs> and I just, you know, again, at the time I was, there were just other things. And so I didn't go there. And then about four years ago, maybe, I attended my first ICSA conference. Um, as a follow-up to that conference, I received an email from ICSA about the program at Salford in the a master's in the psychology of coercive control. And when I attended that seminar with Dr. Rod and Linda Dubrow Marshall, not only did I just feel some resonance with them, but there was just something in me that said, okay, now's the time to kind of engage. And so obviously it was a big decision. I thought, I can't even believe I'm going back to school again, <laughs> but here we go. So that program, and actually this is a good segue, Stephen, kind of into the work that I'm doing. Mm. But, you know, what was interesting about that program? Well, let me back up. So I want to just give thanks to that mother who I now kind of think of as almost a second mom in my life. <laughs> and she, you know, she's a part of this whole story and this journey that I have traveled. Um, so I ended up, um, you know, in this uh, course at Salford. And what was interesting, so at that time when I was at Salford, I had my own private counseling practice. So just seeing clients one-to-one. -one. And pretty quickly as I got in there, I started to think, you know, 
I really need to fill in the gaps of actually how to work with someone and bring them through, you know, a healing process from this type of experience. So the first thing that I did was I joined Dr. Marlene Wynell's Helping Professionals group. So Dr. Marlene Wynell is, um, some of your audience may be familiar with her. She wrote Leaving the Fold, and she coined this term religious trauma syndrome and um, has is working, her work is mostly um, with the fundamentalist Christian yeah. survivors. Um, that's her wheelhouse, although, you know, she probably works mm. with other people as well. Um, and so as a part of her group, you know, I was, um, you know, with therapists who are working with clients. And so we do bring cases to the group. However, I was still feeling like I have, I now have a master's in the psychology of coercive control. I understand all of the, you know, tactics of manipulation and of undue influence and, you know, I, I understand all of these principles, but again, I sort of felt like it doesn't, I don't feel settled in myself that I can really best serve this community in terms of healing work. You know, it just felt kind of too haphazard, if that makes sense. Like, for example, you know, what am I going to do? I'm with somebody who's a survivor and they bring something up and they bring loaded language into the conversation. So I interrupt them and say, oh, well, this is loaded language. Let me teach you about loaded language. And now we understand that principle and move on. You know, it just, it didn't make sense to me. It sort of felt sure. choppy in my mind of like how this work really unfolds or are there, do we know, are there parameters around it? And also, Stephen, as I think you know, I conducted research on people who self-identified as having experienced coercive control and had also received internal family systems therapy. So I had just come out of this major research and really hearing the voices of survivors and the details of what has been helpful, what hasn't been helpful. And so I'm also starting to sort through in my own mind, okay, there's a psychoeducational component to healing that we have to, you know, when we learn these things, I mean, it just opens so much. And also it's protective, right? Because mm -hmm. now you are armed with understanding these techniques and in any environment, you recognize them. Even in, you know, one-to-one manipulation, manipulative mm. relationships, you would start to recognize these dynamics yep. if you're educated around this. But then there's also something else going on where a lot of people, again, depending on the severity of your own experience, a lot of people are coming out of these groups with not even just PTSD, but even complex PTSD mm. and trauma. So there's also this element of trauma that really needs to be worked with in, you know, some element of the population of survivors, maybe not everyone. So what really kind of came together for me was that in this course at Salford, Jilly Jenkinson came to speak 
And I see you smiling, Stephen. We, we love Jilly Jenkinson. She's been on the show, yeah. And I was thinking about her when you were talking about that. So please carry yeah. on, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so she had presented at Salford and she had mentioned that she had put together basically a program for healing. And so right away, I contacted her and sort of said, hi, I'm here. Can I please be on your wait list? You know, I really want to take this program. And she's very thorough about it. You know, everybody goes through an hour long interview. um, And needless to say, I graduated with my certificate from that course a number of months ago. And finally, you know, what I said to Jilly is it's sort of like Jilly has taken all the research that's been done in the field, all the research captured by Paul Martin at Wellspring, um, her own master's thesis, her own PhD work. And this is, this sort of workbook is the result of that. And what I also found to be so helpful and kind of brilliant about it is not just that all the information's there, right? Which to me is just so comforting. It's like every angle is there, right? We're talking about shame. We're talking about the role of anger. We're talking, you know, amidst some of these other psychoeducational principles. But the order in which she has put this together, so I think maybe I shared this a little bit of this with you at some point, Stephen, so forgive me if this is a repeat, but what she has done, for example, is the very first two principles that we address. The first one is around identity. So if you were born in your identity within the group, your identity outside, and then obviously for first gen, a little different. So we talk about that initially and do some work around it to explore what that identity was and is. We then move into this whole principle um, that's amazing. Actually, um, Jilly has an article about this that um, if you are open to it, maybe we could put it in the Mm, notes podcast. Um, So it's this whole principle around kind of pseudo identity and that we can put in the notes, but she talks about this principle that she calls, it's a gestalt term, introjects. Mm -hmm. And so these are these beliefs or messages that are outside of us that we take into ourselves. And, And in even knowing that, we are now kind of armed with the ability to assess those things and decide if they feel like a part of our authentic identity now and we want to keep them or we reject them. And the reason why I bring these two things up is because you might imagine now how as you travel through some of the psychoeducational components and we're exploring mystical manipulation and what that was in the group and and she has ways to work through all of this and explore these things. But as you're doing that, we then have these principles to return to of oh, was that message an interject? Do you want to keep it? Are there other ones with it? Let's explore it and continue to build this identity that you want and you get to have now. Um, And so so it really, 
it's so supportive and empowering. And again, you know, Jilly, but there's also just, I was so happy to, um, well, I will be, she, she will, I'll be doing supervisory work with her now, um, which I'm so grateful for because she obviously has, you know, many years in this field and working with survivors, but she really also, I I feel very aligned with her kind of just in Mm. terms of her whole spirit and her generosity. And, um, you know, she talks about how she has a conversation with people right up front because of what we've all been through and the level of manipulation and the, the trust issues that come into play of even, doing this work with somebody as a survivor where, you know, she welcomes people to challenge her. And I just love that, you know, because I feel like, yes, this is based in research, but, you know, again, having just been engaged in major, you know, work that is super academia, I realize also philosophies change scientific ideas shift. They're not set in stone. You know, so I just love that, that we invite people again in this empowered way to really, um, you know, if, if one of the things we're talking about doesn't sit right with you, tell me about it. Let's talk about it. I'm not here at all to convince you. I'm here to be with you in your process and help clarify whatever I can clarify as we travel this journey together. Yeah, we, we I think we got that sense from her, didn't we, Celine? We uh, we really enjoyed talking to uh, to, to Jilly. Yeah, and, really good um, It experience. feels like mm-hmm. it's a great thing to have out there. This um, this this way of approaching uh, people that are trying to manage this transition. Um, I think you know we've said before that there's you know there's there's a great shortage of counsellors and uh, mental health professionals who understand this subject. Um, and understand what what that's like so yeah to have a, a framework that um that julie's put together i think is so is so useful yeah i must go really back and is. listen to that interview again <laughs> yeah oh well and i'll have to listen yeah. to it as well Absolutely. yeah it's yeah. so nice because it's also flexible you know it's like you can jump around depending on you know what the yeah. individual is going through yeah um but yeah so that's so you're using that um um, I, I got it wrong actually I, I called it something that um, she very politely Julie said well it's not actually that it's called something else so I want to get it right um, because it's not like a linear process is it as you say it's uh, uh, I don't know framework or a, um, a set of modes I can't remember what she said now I'm probably going to get into trouble again I, I wonder if maybe she she does have you kind of divided into phases of healing. I think I said steps, and I think she she put me right on that. They're not really steps; they're phases. <laughs> which, um, and, and she made the point. She's you know thought about it for a long time, and she wanted to get the the, the wording absolutely right, which was um, which was very important. She's very nice about it, obviously, but. Um, Yes, uh, she was very clear. Well, and I should probably was... make my disclaimer, you know, that poor Jilly, I'm not the voice of Jilly, so <laughs> forgive me, Jilly, if I've said anything, you know, out of That's scope. Fine. That's fine. <laughs> but it's um, an amazing body of work, you know. It really, yeah. I just, I am so so grateful, and I, I do think it, you know, it needs to be out there and absolutely. And it's great that people like you um, are, you know, learning these techniques or learning this 
this um, framework and are able to use it. And I, we've spoken to quite a few people now who have both been on the um, the Salford uh, Masters and also have been on this uh, this program with Jilly. So um, you know these are great resources now that are being uh, churned out into the world, uh, which you know you're you're going to be able to help so many people and your cohort. So that's, that's fantastic news. Um, yeah. And Stephen, you know, just to add to that a little bit, one of the other things that I feel really passionate about just because again, you know, having had the experience that I had, um, I very much want people to be synced up to the resources that are right for them and kind of yeah. specific to them. So for example, in the, um, as part of the Jilly cohort that I was a part of, um, there are actually two, two women and one gentleman who, um, two are actually ex JWs themselves. Yeah. One is, uh, works in the ex JW community already. And so, I feel very strongly, for example, that I really, I, I want to help people to get the resources that they want to get. Yeah. So if I'm not the right person for somebody, you know, please contact me anyway, because now as we're, you know, and I'm sure the two of you are amazing resources around this too. It's like the more you're in the world of Ixa and the, you know, cultic studies field and you meet different people and, I find that people really do have a hard time kind of figuring out where the resources are. So I'm very happy to, you know, hook people up to resources yeah. that they want. Well, I mean, for example, like I would recommend, you know, do hmm. people want to work? If you're, if you are an XJW, it's very likely that maybe it would feel great to you to be with somebody who also is, you know. Absolutely, yeah. I think signposting is something that um, we're, we're we're thinking about and how we how we do that. I think there's a lot of a lot of us in this space that are thinking about how we do that in the best way, the most responsible way. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so so we're coming to our well, we're just over our hour now that um, that I said we'd uh, we'd take. So we're we're coming to the end of the podcast, um, Jennifer. I just wanted to talk about briefly about your podcast and um, tell us about the reason why you wanted to do that and uh, tell us a bit about that uh, and how people can listen to it. Yeah, well, it's it's such a nice segue, actually, because having shared, you know, what I shared with you all today, really the podcast was born out of this experience of feeling that I really wanted to put something out there for families and friends because of kind of the pain that I had caused my family or, you know, journeyed sure. with them through. Um, and so that really is, is where the podcast came from. It is called the Project Hope Podcast and um, it's stories with survivors. Um, this season two is about to launch and I have more um, experts on, as well as kind of family members. I'm trying to get sort of more family stories sure. because again, there's such a wide variety, you know, mm. and mine is one of, of many. Um, so, so uh, we, I always kind of ask the question of the audience, you know, what their kind of family situation was in their mm. story. Um, but yeah, that's, 
that's sort of the podcast story Sounds and great. it's been so amazing and rewarding. And, you know, I'm sure the two of you relate. Mm. It's like anytime Absolutely. somebody kind of comes out of the woodwork and says, thank you or how yeah. things impacted or affected them. It just yeah. so lovely. I think it's a really yeah, great resource in that a lot of people we talk to, including our own is um, very focused on the person that was in, but you're talking to the people that are affected by as well. So like the wider group as well. So I think that's really useful. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's something that we've um, spoken point. to someone about before. So I think definitely really useful because I'm sure we do have listeners um, that listen that it's not just about them, it's about family and friends and stuff like Mm. that. So knowing your podcast exists will be really good and useful for people as well. Um, So yeah, like, thank you for making that content as a niche I didn't realize was needed, but obviously is. So thank you. Thanks, Celine. Thank you so much Mm -hmm. for coming on the podcast today. We've absolutely loved having you. Um, we, we had a, a few missteps in trying to arrange it. Um, <laughs> we, we both got uh, got dates wrong oh, and no. all of that, didn't we? But uh, we, we got there in the end. Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> it was definitely worth it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, keep up the good work. And, um, uh, I mean, hopefully we'll keep in touch and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we can talk again about your work and, and what's happening in this, this space. Um, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today, Jennifer French. Thank you both so much. It was just such a pleasure. And if there's anything mm-hmm. I can do at any point to support the podcast, I also really just quickly, I love also what the two of you are doing. Mm-hmm. I just think it's, as I've been telling people about it, I've been saying what a brilliant oh. concept, you know, <laughs> to have the, um, like the question, you know, the questions, because we all, mm-hmm. there are so mm-hmm. many questions to explore. And mm-hmm. so thank you both as well. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. is an evil sheep production.